Michael Benner is an L.A. radio icon who, for several decades, was the link at mainly a rock and roll station between rock fans and the discussion of issues of the day, along with a lot of focus on alternative thinking. Now, that's alternative thinking, not alternative facts. I am honored beyond words to be able to have him on my first show and hope we can tap into his knowledge again in the future. Thanks for doing the show, Michael. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you again. Yeah. So we're in this situation now that seems overwhelming to many. How did we get into this mess and how do we move forward to get out of it? You're talking about the current political situation and all the ramifications of having a non-politician like Donald Trump in the White House. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I think it's important to mention that he's not a politician Hmm. because my personal view of the crisis that we face in America is that it's really not a matter of politics. Uh, Politics simply, whether you're on the left or the right, whether you're a Republican, the conservative, uh, libertarian, or some sort of liberal or progressive. Politics, I think, clearly has become very incestuous and corrupt, frankly. And it's due simply to money and Mm. campaign financing. It's not that our politicians are bad or evil people, uh, although there is a vicious cycle where as things spiral down and there's more money. Uh, This uh, congressman that has currently uh, been nominated as the uh, head of health and human services obviously has been buying stock in companies that he then passes legislation to influence those individual companies and then benefit from the insider trading But the larger problem is just that our congressmen and women, senators and representatives, spend between a third and a half of every day raising money to stay in office. Mm. And that money comes mostly from lobbyists and special interest groups because you and I can't pony up the tens of thousands of dollars that it takes to influence a congressperson to vote in our interests. So the scale has been tipped to favor special interests. Now, again, you may say, oh, you mean corporations, but somebody on the right might say, oh, you're talking about the undue influence of unions. Uh, No, I'm just talking about any large institution that may have a different point of view. It's likely they have a different point of view than the rest of us. So democracy is not working. And out of that frustration, and then compounded by the economics, the inappropriate, uh, the inequity of uh, all of the new money going to just a tiny handful of people, they talk about the 1% is more like one-tenth of 1% that are enjoying the growth in America. 
that created such frustration that people said, well, the hell with it. I'll anybody, if anybody comes along mm. who is not a politician, uh, I'll go for them. And here's Donald Trump, who is, you know, made a name for himself on Fox News by questioning the legitimacy of President Obama, that he was not American, born outside the country, uh, a secret Muslim, and and so on and so forth, all of which is like a uh, a dog whistle to people who don't like him for any variety of reasons. And he built his reputation on that, being outrageous. And my take on it, Mike, is that's what happened in November. People said, the hell with it. I'm sick and tired of politics as usual. I'll take anybody who's outside the norm. And um, I guess the only other element we should touch on quickly is just that people who supported the Democrat, Hillary Clinton in this case, figured she had it in the bag. So they didn't register and they didn't vote. Yeah. So we're in this mess now. What do you, well, first of all, yeah, we're in this mess now. So how how do we get out of this mess? In in your eyes, well, first of all, it's going to take time. We need to be patient. I think you saw last Saturday, um, the groundswell mm. of opposition uh, with the women's march and and. I'm hesitating to comment on this, trying to decide exactly how to create a context for it. I guess, Mike, the what I find most exciting and most hopeful about the Women's March is the lack of a specific agenda. That it might appear that they were opposing Donald Trump and all that he stands for. I think this is the flip side of the coin or the other end of the spectrum. These are people who, like Trump supporters, felt disenfranchised as if they had nobody to vote for, and many of them did not vote. And yet, when they saw what happened, Mm. a guy that favors war crimes, for example, that is turning the Environmental Protection Agency over to someone who sues the APA, who who uh, denies global warming, who is so insecure he's obsessed with crowd size and um, seems to be interested in this fantasy about millions of people voting illegally, all of them for his opposition, none for him, and yet (laughs) completely uninterested in the fact that the Soviet Union chose him to be our president. Soviet Union, I'm dating myself. Russia chose him to be our president. I mean, this is a serious cyber invasion of our country. No different than as if Russian troops had marched on shore. And yet he's not interested in that, obviously, because they favor him. So these are real serious issues. We've aligned ourselves with the dictator. He questions NATO. He's talked 
in a cavalier way about using nuclear weapons. He says climate warming is a hoax. The Secretary of Labor opposes the minimum wage and equal pay and wants to abolish child labor laws. I mean, it's just this Orwellian nightmare where we went from a very progressive president, a man of color, with the middle name Hussein, <laughs> who we not only elected but re-elected, to somebody who's not only not a politician but is lacking the mental clarity and the emotional security, uh, even the, even an attention span. I'm concerned about his his ADD and his OCD and his narcissism. He has the attention span of a five-year-old. And this is not being mean. This is just a simple fact. This is, this is frightening. It's terrifying. So between like laughing at how silly it is and crying yourself to sleep because you don't know if the world's going to be blown up tomorrow. Right. Uh, we're in a very bizarre, you could say exciting, it is that, but excitement is a first cousin to fear. They're very, 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 very close. Yeah. 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 So in your eyes, uh, the protest this past week is a good sign and a, and a, a good step in the, in the right direction. Yes, because I want to say it's unifying America, but I think a better word, Mike, is harmonizing. Because, again the fact that it's agenda-free, that it's about so many things, that it's not just opposing Donald Trump, sure. but it's supporting some real basic American values, which is justice, liberty, the Bill of Rights, a representative government that works for everybody, for the greater good. These are old-fashioned American principles that somehow have uh, we've gotten away from. And the solution is not a partisan solution. Republicans are not going to come to their senses. Remember, most of them oppose Trump. Right. Republicans are not going to come to their senses and suddenly say, we need to reestablish the Republican Party the way it used to be, you know, in the Reagan days or Eisenhower. Uh, they can't really point to Nixon. And the Democrats don't have any solutions. You see, many of our most progressive Democrats are voting for Trump's nominees, for cabinet positions that they should be opposing. And that's baffling to many people. Uh, and within the Republican Party, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are part of a movement that's saying we need a whole new approach on that side. We can't stay with business as usual and old-fashioned democratic machine politics. This is not the days of Mayor Daley in Chicago, you know, running a democratic machine. So... This is huge, Mike. This is revolutionary, what's happening in America. And uh, 
So while I'm very, very concerned, I'm also very excited. And I just hope nothing reckless happens in terms of starting more war that's going to hurt people, uh, you know, kill people, suffering. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that we're turning our back on refugees. We don't seem to remember there's a difference between a refugee and an immigrant, someone seeking refuge this country has always been a safe haven, uh, our Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. My God, we can't give that up. That's We are a nation of immigrants. Apologies to the Native American Indians. We are a nation of immigrants and apologies to the slaves as well. And yet, we can do so much better. So I think this is a, you can talk about a a swing of the pendulum or some sort of alchemical transmutation where things have to get really, really, really bad before they get better. I would just caution your listeners to go beyond partisan thinking. Like it's either got to be a Democrat or a Republican. Mm. That either or... You know, that goes back to the French Revolution, left and right side of the aisle. We have to think third-way politics, middle-way politics. We can count past two. So if I understand what you're saying is the silver lining is the darkest hour is just before the dawn, to quote a a David Crosby song, and maybe this is a dawn of sorts, right? No question about it. No question about it. In philosophy, there's a concept called the ring pass knot about, again, how things have to get really painful before they can improve. Uh, just think of human nature. Often in our lives, we don't do anything to change until things <laughs> are really hurting. Right. But uh, a, a good example of this is a bird inside an egg Few people ever consider why does the bird leave the comfort and security of the egg? Well, it's because it's running out of food and air. Mm. And it's desperately thrashing about and pecking and exhausting itself trying to break through this shell. And Mm. after great pain and suffering, it finally breaks through. It's like the doors breaking on through to the other side. And now it finds itself past that ring pass knot, but now it's in a nest. So initially it has a lot more room. It's being fed. It moves around, but soon it gets crowded in the nest. And the process repeats, and the bird has to learn to fly, or it'll fall to the ground and be devoured. And so in our lives, as we grow and expand, it appears that we go through a series of these rings. In evolution, it's called punctuated evolution. It's a stair-step function where instead of being a linear change or or, uh, like a curve, it's more no change, no change, no change, and then a quantum leap. Mm. And then no change, no change, no change, 
and then an explosive change. We see that in evolution. We see that in the example I gave about the bird and the shell and the nest. And we can probably see similar growth spurts in our own lives. And that pattern, I think, is going to be repeated socially, politically, economically as well. So, yes, I am very excited. I'm still, however, concerned about the breaking through and who's going to get hurt. Right. Personal growth is a big thing with you. And and just looking at things realistically the way we are today, the question I always ask myself these days in dealing with friends and family members that have attached themselves to this new alternative facts world, how do I deal with them? Do I try to reason with them or just ignore them? Or or what do I do, Michael? Boy, that's such a wonderful question, Mike. Thank you. And I think so many people are concerned about that um, because they love their family members and their friends who seem to be on the other side, so to speak. Uh, I think, and this may surprise you, but I think the most important thing we can do, the greatest gift that we can give people who disagree with us, whether we think they're wrong or uninformed or out of their minds, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think the best thing we can do is listen. Ask good questions. I teach sales seminars, among other things. And one of the things I teach salespeople to do that they seem to be naturally adverse to doing and need training to understand the value of asking questions. You know, tell me about your business. Um, How'd you get into it? What do you like about it? How's it going? Uh, are repeat customers important to you? How are you doing with referrals? Would you like more? Ref- you're getting more information, number one. You're learning about them. Right. But you're also putting them at ease and creating a sense that, hey, this guy's really interested in me. People love to talk about themselves. Sure. By the way, this is a great strategy for dating. People say, I never know what to say on that first date. I said, well, shut up and don't say anything. Ask questions. You know, tell me about yourself. Where did you go to school? What are you interested in? Why do you care about that? What are your hobbies? If you had $10 million and didn't have to go to work, what would you do? And then what would you do? And you and I are familiar with asking questions. We love to ask questions. And so I think that's what we need to do with our friends and families. Give them an opportunity to explain themselves and listen sincerely, not just patronizing them, but really try to understand. Number two, play back what you've heard. Mm. Acknowledge to them. I hear that you're saying that you feel... Da-da-da-da-da-da, right? When people disagree with us, they don't 
want to win. They may think they want to win an argument and we have to lose. What they really want, Mike, is to be heard and understood. And if you tell somebody that I understand how you could feel that way. Oh, by the way, I don't agree with you, but that's beside the point. I understand how you could feel that way. That makes sense to me. Mm. My feelings are different. I may get around to telling you about them one of these days. Uh, in fact, maybe even in a few minutes, I, I, I may get that opportunity. But right now, I've put my agenda to, aside and am devoting myself to making sure you feel heard and understood. That is disarming. That's really a smart strategy. And then if they, in the future, in your discussion, begin to get a little hostile, aggressive, angry, remember, they're feeling threatened by what you know, what you understand, by your clarity and your insight. You just go back to, well, wait a minute. We talked about that. I, I really do understand that. Mm -hmm. And then repeat it. You feel da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, I'll just add real quickly. Most people are afraid to acknowledge their understanding for fear that it will convey a sense of and I agree with you, and I will comply. For example, I taught this technique at the Orange County, California Sheriff's Academy. I did a self-awareness training for the cadets down there, the deputies and the staff, for several years. And when we got to this, I understand how you feel, I called it the five magic words, uh, there was a lot of resistance to that because they were afraid it 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 means complicity. Okay, you win. I'll, I'll go along with whatever you say. And cops aren't going to do that. They're not used to that. I remember one of the first classes I taught down there, a uh, young deputy in the back row, maybe 22, 23 years old, looking really sharp, Marine-like, with his uniform all starched and raised his hand. This is in an academy setting, and he said to me, Sir, I do not have any desire to sell, tell some inmate in the jail that I understand how he feels. I don't care how he feels. I want him to do what I tell him to do because I tell him to do it. And I waited two long beats and said, Sir, I totally understand how you feel. And, of course, the whole room cracked up because there I, was using <laughs> I was using the very technique. And right. he laughed. He, I mean, he, he, it was not derisive laughter. He, he joined in. He got it and saw how effective this technique is. So I under, these are the five magic words, Mike. I understand how you feel. So first we listen. Second, we use the five magic words. And then if you have an opportunity, having done that, to say, now, would you like to hear how I feel? Because I'd like to feel heard and understood, too. <laughs> And maybe we're not directly opposed. Maybe these are just different but not opposite. Mm. That's another important phrase most people 
are not familiar with, how things can be different and not opposite. Hmm. It's really not that complicated. If you say it that way, people go, oh, well, okay. And yet, the way we're trained to think, Either or it's the amygdala in the back of the brain. It's this fight or flight, either or. You're with me, you're against me. There's good guys, there's bad guys. If you don't look like me, think like me, act like me, you're one of them. Hmm. I don't know what them is, but you're not me. And there's only two ways anything can be. So you must be them. And that's as far as most people go, again, the idea of a third way mm. of permutations and combinations and variations is difficult for most people. And part of being a good leader is remembering always in your communication that this is different, but not necessarily opposite. I'm not opposing you. It's just... I mean, men and women, people are people we love. My wife doesn't agree with me on lots of things and <laughs> and vice versa. And we love each other dearly. You know, my best friends, we don't agree on everything. Mm-hmm. I've never met anybody that agreed with me <laughs> on everything, right? right? So we got to get better at that. Well, I think uh, people, if they want to get an expanded view of uh, what you're talking about here, I think they need to go to your website and all of that. And we'll talk about uh, how they can hook up with you uh, at the end of this interview. But uh, one of the podcasts I listened to uh, yesterday before in preparing for this interview, it talked you talked about how the uh, back to the protest uh, thing, how protesting can also uh, add to your personal growth in a certain way. It, it'll, it, it, it helps release things. You, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, being an activist is a good form of stress management. It allows you to feel like you're accomplishing something. And in fact, you are. And I know a lot of people disagree. They would say, well, you're not getting any, why are you marching? That's stupid. What are you going to accomplish by marching? Well, ask that to a civil rights leader from the 50s and 60s. What are you going to accomplish by marching? What are you going to accomplish by refusing to ride the bus? What are you going to ask Gandhi? What are you going to accomplish with the salt march to the sea when the British are gunning you down and you refuse to pick up arms against them? What do you hope to accomplish? And Gandhi said, well, we don't want to kill the British. We just want them to leave. And they did. (laughs) What did we accomplish in the Vietnam era? We stopped the war. Not as quickly as we wanted, but we did. And I could continue, but I think you see the point. Think of the word demonstration. What are you demonstrating? It's a rich word with several connotations. We are demonstrating our solidarity. We're demonstrating our willingness 
to do something that's very inconvenient, to give up my Saturday when I could be working in my garden or taking the kids to the zoo or reading the book. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to drive a long distance. I'm going to uh, incur some unnecessary expense to join a group of people that I don't even know to express my emotional angst, my emotional tension, my, I'll use three words here that mean the same thing, stress, anxiety, and fear. I'm writing a book, Mike, called Fearless Intelligence, and the basic premise of the book, it should be out in a few months, the basic premise of fearless intelligence is that fear, by any name, stress, anxiety, worry, doubt, nervousness, anything from panic to mild apprehension, has little to do with danger, almost nothing to do with danger. What fear, stress, and anxiety really is, is the brain alerting us that we're confused, that we're unaware, that there's something we do not understand, whether dangerous or not. Hmm. Think how often somebody will say, hey, Mike, what are you so worried about, man? Why are you so stressed? And we have to admit, we're both named Mike, we have to admit, I don't know. Right. I don't know why I'm so stressed. <laughs> well, that's the point. That's what stress is. Yeah. What are you afraid of? Damned if I know. Yeah. Well, that's the point. So you say, well, then why am I afraid in the face of danger? You're afraid of what you don't know about the danger. Mm. But we're often stressed even when there is no danger because stress, anxiety, and fear is about what we do not know. So the antidote is to know and understand. One, the circumstances around us that are confusing. In police work, they call that situational awareness. But even more importantly, two, what we don't know about the world within us. And this is why I was brought to train the police because they did not have self-awareness, by and large. Some do. It's a matter of degree. I called it internal vigilance. Like, just as you have to be aware of, you know, you come on a crime scene, you clear the house, you look in the back seat, you make sure that, you know, there's no guns under the front seat of the car you have to you have to look around and be aware of the situation around you but we also need to be aware of the situation within us is my stress developing into anger am i becoming uh blinded by that anger and likely to make bad decisions is it likely that any minute, because of my anxiety, my defensiveness, my anger, that I'm going to say something or do something that I will soon regret 
and wish I hadn't done? Can I see that coming a mile away? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is yes. We can learn to see our anger on the horizon while it's still small. We can uh, cut it off at the pass, nip it in the bud, and prevent ourselves. That's This is what emotional intelligence is, to manage that anxiety. So it's sort of like preventive medicine. It's good preventive health care to be active, to demonstrate uh, whether it's reading, uh, talking to our friends, remember, listening first and acknowledging, and then expressing. See, what what we do not express remains repressed, and then mm-hmm. like a pressure cooker, we explode one afternoon and do things that are regrettable and resentful. But if instead we... Ch- bleed off that pressure a little bit at a time, go to a demonstration, make a sign, write a letter, call your congressman. These kinds of things are good mental health beyond whatever positive impact they have in a democracy, um, making it fair and just. It, It releases the personal pressure. And, yeah, you said it better than I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, as a guy that has, like myself, worked and loved radio all our careers, we know the power that radio once had in moving and motivating. Uh, I'm not sure the mojo of radio is what it once was, and much of that power has moved to social media. As an old radio guy, how do you see social media and the Internet as a tool to motivate like radio used to? Or is that not the best tool available today? Um, Not sure what's the best tool, I think. I mean, media is plural. Social media is many things. And I guess that's the best way to answer your question, Mike, is what's happening and continuing to happen is a very exciting and empowering decentralization of communication technology. Mm. It used to be that uh, if you were going to communicate, you had to own a printing press, And then we got mimeograph machines. Well, that's pretty expensive. Not many people had a mimeograph machine, but pretty soon there were Xerox machines and then laser printers. Holy cow. (laughs) That really changed things. Yeah. Um, So to go from needing a printing press to, uh, remember those, handouts in high school with the blue ink on the white paper, the mimeograph machine. Love to smell those. Yeah. (laughs) Early high. Indeed. (laughs) And then, uh, as I say, we got uh, eventually laser printers, inkjet printers. Well, in the same way, we have, you know, the, the typewriters that become word processors Somewhere in the mid-90s, although we had CompuServe, we suddenly 
grew to the internet and we had even more opportunities for email and then cell phones and texting and now anybody can do a podcast. Mm. Anybody can do an internet radio show. Anybody can write a blog. And how can this be a bad thing? This is wonderful. This is this is what could be more American. I mean, if we look at dictatorial governments, authoritarian governments like Russia or China, what are they doing? They're or North Korea. They're busy shutting down the internet, trying to control access to media, uh, trying to prevent people from doing their own podcasts and their own blogs. And so they can't control. If we have access to all this media, we can't be controlled. Mm. We have input. We can influence. We can persuade. And diversity is a good thing. Diversity has always been a good thing. One of the debates about, you don't mind me going off on a little tangent here. I promise I won't go too far afield. Do it. One of the debates that baffles me currently has to do with objectivity in the media. Well, now, I've taught broadcast journalism at the college level. And at one point, I went through my textbook and back to my college textbooks. And, Mike, I could not find the word objective in any one of those journalism textbooks. And the First Amendment doesn't talk about an objective press. It talks about a free press. Now, my favorite example of this goes to a U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1945 that involved the U.S. government and the Associated Press. And... It was sort of an anti-monopoly suit against the Associated Press, which the government won. And in the majority opinion was a phrase about democracy resting, requiring a well-informed electorate that gets its information from a diverse and antagonistic media. (laughs) And I remember at the time, I'm in college when when I'm first exposed to this, and then I taught it in my classes, diverse and antagonistic media. Boy, that's a phrase that merits being memorized. Diverse and antagonistic. Fox News has its place. Mm. It shouldn't be objective. They get to be as crazy, as wacky, as offbeat as the Farmer's Almanac. (laughs) They've got every right Mm. to push their agenda. And so does MSNBC. Or The Guardian. Or Mother Jones. Or The Nation these magazines, and that makes for 
a healthier democracy because it allows you and me as consumers of news to expose ourselves to diverse and antagonistic to contrasting points of view. This is like one and one equals more than two because now I read this source, I read this source that is completely different has different information from a different point of view, different, and then there's a synthesis in the middle where I begin to think for myself. There's a crazy idea. Yeah. And so I told you I was going to go a little far afield here, so let me bring it back to your topic and hand it back to you. If... If your listeners get nothing else from this interview today, then to decide that's far out. I'm going to memorize that phrase. Diverse and antagonistic media, we're not supposed to have an objective media. We're not supposed to find the one right source of news. We're supposed to go out of our way to read really contrasting diverse viewpoints and think for ourselves. Well, that, that's an amazing uh, analysis. And, uh, and that's how I live my life in terms of, of getting information. Uh, a lot of my friends say, well, why do you watch Fox News? And I said, because I want to see all sides of it. The problem that people might have is what about those people that lock into one of those and don't experience the diversity of media. Well, that's that's number one, lazy. And number two, reinforcing your prejudices. Mm. That's the appeal of, I just want to hear what I want to hear. Preaching to the choir. Yeah, I, I, I just, uh, you know, this bears upon the phrase coined by... Stephen Colbert, uh, or the word he coined, truthiness. <laughs> and truthiness is, I know it's true because I feel it ought to be. Right. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this really started with George W. Bush. You know, he, he didn't know there were weapons of mass destruction, but for whatever reason, he wanted to go into Iraq. Some say it was oil. Donald Trump th seems to think so. Uh, maybe it's balance of power. Maybe it's this idea that the U.S. could uh, change the whole Middle East and foment revolution because many of these governments are so dictatorial. Uh, I'll leave it to the historians to decide his real motives. But... They came up with this malarkey about weapons of mass destruction. Many of us knew it was nonsense at the time hmm. uh, because we had international inspectors that, that said there are no weapons. The UN inspectors said, no, you're wrong. There are no weapons of mass destruction. And the CIA takes a hit for this. The CIA never told Bush and Cheney there were weapons of mass destruction. This was Cheney going to the CIA and setting up his own little rogue cadre of agents. This is where the torture came from as well. Cheney had his own little 
Dick Cheney CIA group. That's where they supposedly got the information that Colin Powell presented to the UN. But there were never weapons of mass destruction, and and yet Bush felt there were, and and so I, you know, I just feel in my bones. I just he talked about looking Putin in the eye and reading his soul and. You know, I'm a big believer in the value of intuition and instinct, and emotional intelligence is a wonderful thing, but it's not a substitute for logic and reasoning <laughs> and, right. and, and factual information, right. right? We'd like a little of that, too, along the way. Yeah. And so when it comes to news, truthiness is not good enough. We can't just listen to what makes us feel safe or reinforce our prejudices and pretend we're well-informed. You're not well-informed unless you're being disturbed and and, and upset. Right. Uh, I saw a sign the other day that sort of bears on this. It was about art, but it, we could say the same thing about news. It said, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Mm. And I think news should do the same thing. It should comfort us when we're disturbed and disturb us when we get a little too comfortable. Mm. Well, Michael, uh, this has been a great little session. I hope we can do uh, similar sessions down the line uh, in various outlets that we've got going here. And I want to tell everybody, uh, you you still do seminars and podcasts under uh, the very appropriate banner of the Ageless Wisdom at age at theagelesswisdom dot com. Uh, is that website the best place to get in contact with you, or are uh, is there other ways of getting in touch with you and and hooking up with? what you've got going. Yeah, I've got a uh, michaelbenner.com website that's sort of a gateway to several others, but that's uh, the central website really is, as you say, with the T-H-E, the, and the W's, in other words, right. that H-T-P, all of that stuff, yeah. and then the Ageless Wisdom Dot com, And I can uh, uh, be uh, contacted via email simply by putting my initials in front of that. So MB, like Michael Benner, Mary Baker, just MB at theagelesswisdom.com. And if you go to theagelesswisdom.com website, you'll find that Michael's got a lot of things going on. He's got podcasts. Uh, uh, he will help you with personal growth if you need uh, that sort of training and uh, lots of other fun stuff, actually, at the website. So I encourage you all to go there. Good reading list, too. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I have the uh, in the reading list, I have a, a personal development list. Uh, that uh, goes beyond some of the classics. I mean, we all know uh, Stephen Covey and Norman Vincent Peale and Dale Carnegie and Brian Tracy and Napoleon Hill. But I have a second column of spiritual development. 
And this is not about religion. This is about the transpersonal. This is where we go beyond career and relationship and the typical sense of self to a transcendent sense of who we are and what we're for. You know, this is a good place to conclude this too, Mike. Human beings are beautiful people, and we have a shadow side. We're capable of horrible things. Uh, don't I, I don't have to go on about about that? What an individual or or a group of individuals can do that's horrible and despicable and and illegal. Our prisons are full of people, violent crime and such. But having said that, there's a side that is. Well, if the evil is the shadow side, there's a light side. There's a light in us. We are illumined and animated, I would say, by goodness. We are capable of love, kindness, sacrifice even, that if we dwell upon it is awesome. It's just unbelievable the sacrifices that people are willing to make. I mean, who would walk by an injured animal and not care and not do something and not try to help? And yeah, sometimes we get calloused because we so see so many homeless people and we don't know what to do. We're just overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problems that we face. But that doesn't contradict the fact that human beings are beautiful, magnificent creatures. So are the other animals. Animals have emotions. There's new research coming out that's quite revealing about an animal's capacity to love and care. We see this in our pets, but we see it in nature also in the wilderness um, that animals grieve when one of their own dies, they linger, they, they, and this is quite remarkable. And I think over and above the social and political turmoil that we're experiencing right now, there is also the coming of an awareness of how wonderful we really are. Human evolution has not plateaued, that we are but a branch on the tree, and the tree is continuing to grow, and there will be higher branches, and uh, human, human beings are going to continue to evolve to not only be smarter mentally and physically stronger, but emotionally more loving and more caring and, and, and kinder and therefore wiser. Because wisdom is more about emotional and spiritual intelligence than anything mental. So the idea more and more people are describing themselves as spiritual but not religious. And if, if anybody wondered what that means, transpersonal is a, a, a good word for it. We are more than we appear to be. This is not your grandfather's world. <laughs> mm. 
Well, Michael, thank you for shining a little light today, and I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure.